If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible or have one with you, you can find 1 Peter 1 on page 953 in the Black Pew Bibles in the seats around you. Dream with me for a minute. The world is hard. Living in exile and not in your permanent forever home is difficult. But wouldn't it be lovely to be a part of a community of people who sincerely, earnestly love you? Wouldn't it make all the difference if things were going really rocky in your individual life? or in the world around us, if you knew that there were people that cared for you. Wouldn't it be beautiful to be a part of a gathering, a community, a family, where we're not jealous of one another, but we're genuinely thankful and rejoicing with the wonderful good things that happen in other people's lives. Where there's no show, there's no pretense, there's no masks. You are truly who God made you to be, and you are loved, not just by God, but by the people around you. How beautiful, how lovely. Is this just a dream? Or should this be our reality? First Peter is suggesting this should be our reality, Embassy Church. Exile is hard. This is not our forever home. The world is broken. In fact, we're broken. But love, love makes all the difference. To be loved and to love one another. That's the key takeaway from our passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. It's not a pipe dream. It's what's expected for Christians dwelling in exile. Let's read God's word together, starting in verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, the grass does wither and the flowers do fall, but this word, the gospel, it endures forever. Amen? Love. Love earnestly. It's expected. It's commanded. Is it possible? Here's the equation that I have for you. A plus B equals C. Here's the A. Pure hearts plus pure milk equals pure love. The equation for Christians in exile is pure heart plus pure milk results in pure love. That's my summary of our text. Peter's been encouraging Christians who are in exile. And for those of you that are just catching up to speed, this phrase exile is important. It's a theme throughout scripture. It actually is the first story of scripture. The word exile is used about banishing Adam and Eve out of the garden. Sin leads God's people out of their home. In the same way, the people of Israel were exiled out of their home, lost access to God and his presence in the temple, and lived in Babylon for 70 years. Here, 1 Peter is writing to a group of Christians, and as you can see in verses 1 and 2, they're spread all over Asia Minor. And as they are, he calls them elect exiles. The context is important. Life is hard when you're not in your home, when things are unsettled. And in this hard, difficult situation where there is opposition, especially from outside, Peter is giving the foundational encouragements in chapter 1. And by way of review, he's talked about the hope that you have in the gospel. That's verse 13. The encouragement to live distinct and holy that's verses 14 to 16. And as we saw last week, he says that you should fear the Lord and not man, because the Lord is your judge. And he's the same Lord who is your father, who loves you so much that he gave his son, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. He ransomed you so that you would one day return home. As we pick up where we left off, he's still encouraging, but if you notice the shift in verse 22, the shift here is not toward God. Hope in God, verse 13. Be holy like God, verses 14 to 16. Fear God, verse 17 and 18. Verse 22. Love one another. So from the vertical orientation of setting your hope on God, now it's how should that translate over into how we treat one another? And he says, it's love. Love one another earnestly and sincerely. But in order to love, you need more than just a command. Have you thought about that before? 
if I tell you, I really love the Washington Capitals hockey team. Love them. Does, does that just stir up love and affection for this professional hockey team? Do any of you just like, I'm an immediate fan. You got me. Sold. Do you see what I mean? You need more than just the command. Love each other. Well, I don't know. Have you looked around, Pastor Phil? These people? Love, like literally humans sitting next to me? Love them? How's that even possible? It's not possible by just telling you again and again. Love! That's where the equation comes in. You need a new heart. You need a new hunger. And when those two combine, you become a new human who loves. So let's unpack the equation. Let's start with the first point. You need a new heart. In order to be a kind of person that loves, you have to have a new kind of heart. So if I just sit up here and keep telling you, love, 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 and you don't have a heart that cares about loving, we aren't making any progress. Notice verse 22 says, having purified your souls. And the word soul here is about the heart, the inner person, the non-material part of you. Can you take love out of your body and just put it in a vase? No. There's something mysterious, something immaterial about love. You know what it is. You know when you see it. But it's not something you can grab and hold on to. Similarly, your soul, your heart, the inner person of you, not the thing that beats and pumps blood, the thing that represents who you are. And notice that he starts by saying, having your heart, your soul purified. It needs to be cleansed. It needs to be changed. In order for you to do the command that he's about to say, love, step one, a new heart, a purified heart. Look at the way he says this in verse 23, and it's related to the command. Notice the relationship between the love command in verse 22 and then the comma 23. Since you've been born again. On the basis of your new heart, because you're a new person, because you've been born again, love. Live out that new reality. It's an important relationship that you see that he starts with the realization that you have a purified new heart, which gives you the ability to love. It's the goal of your new heart. Notice the word for in verse 22. For your purified heart happened by your obedience to the truth. For what goal? Love. You've been born again with a new heart so that you would love. So love since you've been born again. He's sandwiching it actually. On the bookends of the command for love is the grounds, the reasons, the basis for your ability to love. Purified heart being born again. Which is why at the end of the chapter or section that we're reading, he says, be like a baby. Be like a newborn infant. Because you're new. You're a new creation. Already now, already a new person with a new heart. Old body, yes. Decaying outer flesh. Well, he makes that quite clear by quoting Isaiah 40, doesn't he? All flesh is going to fade. This tent is not permanent. 
This physical body won't last. But already in that tent of your physical body is a new creation, a new heart. This is so foundational. It's so foundational for you individually. So if you're here today and you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. I'm glad you're here. As Christians, we understand that you aren't a Christian because you were born into a religious family. That you got lucky and that you just so happened to be born into a Christian family and that's what makes you Christian. This is actually foundational for all of Christian faith. You're a Christian because you have a new heart, because God caused you to be born again. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 carefully. The causal language of God's action could not be more clear in 1 Peter. According to his great mercy, he caused you to be born again. In order for you to love, something has to happen to you first. Someone has to love you first. This is what the epistle in John says in 1 John. We love because he first loved us. Do you see what I'm trying to say here with our first point? You need a new heart that has been changed and transformed, where the best description is that you've actually been born again. Doesn't this remind you of that well-known conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, this very religious person, grew up Jewish. He asks Jesus, what do you need to do? What's the most important thing? And Jesus says, to be born again. So, friend, if you're sitting here and you've never been born again, this is top priority for you today. Be born again. Receive the good news that is being preached to you right now as God's love coming down into your heart. Receive it. Be open to it. Brothers and sisters, members of Embassy Church, two very important implications from this first point. Number one, God does the work of saving through the preaching of his word, which we're going to explain more of that in the second point. But for now, realize, we don't save people. You cannot manipulate someone into salvation. They're saved by God. He causes people to be born again in the same way that you did nothing to be born the first time. God did everything for you to be born the second time. This is good news. Now, you have a response of repentance and faith. Don't overstate the case that you just sat around and did nothing. You did do something, but that was all evidence of God's love being poured into your new heart, that you had faith, that you had repentance. These are actually called gifts in the Bible. Repentance and faith, our part, is part of the love. It's part of the gift of salvation. You can't take any credit for any of it. That's incredibly good news for you when you're struggling with your salvation, your assurance. How did you get into it in the first place? Because of God's grace and his love that he showered upon you. Not because you figured it out. Not because you're so morally excellent. So realize that this is foundational for our evangelism. This is foundational for our church membership. We believe at Embassy that members of the church should be Christians. It's kind of simple. Seems like it makes sense. But notice that Christians are people who have been born again. The technical term for this is regenerate church membership. 
And the word regenerate is the same phrase to talk about the renewal of being born again. It's the exact same word in the Greek. Born again church membership. So if you ever hear anyone like myself or other elders, or somebody talking about church membership, they mean Christians who really have a new heart. And that's demonstrated by their repentance of their sins, by their trust in the gospel, by their faith, wholehearted, complete hope in the future grace that's coming when Christ returns. These marks of a Christian that we're going to explain more throughout this sermon, in fact, are the very basics for what it means to be a member of a church. Now, if you're not a member of this church, I would encourage you to find a church to be a member of. Not for the sake of your salvation, but for the sake of your growth and the spiritual good of finding a community of people where you can do these things that we're talking about in this sermon. You need a new heart, and the way to get that new heart is through the word. And a church is where we feed each other with the word. Which brings us to point two. You need a new heart that will give you a new hunger for the word of God. Our passage could not make this more clear. It says it again and again and then again. Three times it tells you that it is by God's word that your heart gets changed and that gives you new hungers for God and the gospel. Instance number one, look at verse 22. Having purified your souls. Well, Pastor Phil, that's, that's important. How does my soul get purified? Answer, by your obedience to the truth. And in case any of you are unfamiliar, this phrase, the truth, is a shorthand reference by many New Testament authors of the gospel. So let me just translate it that way and hear it sounding like that. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the gospel. The truth of the gospel that Christ is your savior of your sins. He is the one who pours out the power of the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart. He's the one who took your place on the cross, died for you with that precious blood like that of a lamb in verse 19 of 1 Peter. The gospel, that's how we get a new heart. And then when you have that new heart, it gives you new hungers for God. So notice that in verse 23, he says that you've been born again, and then that was through the living and abiding word of God. And then chapter 2, verse 2, he says, so therefore, in your newborn infancy, long for the pure spiritual milk. Crave it. A new heart means you have new hungers, new cravings, new desires. This is a great test case for all of us in this room. If you're a true Christian, then you will know because you have new hungers. Most every time you hear somebody share a testimony of how they became a Christian, again, it wasn't because of the family they grew up into. It was because by hearing the good news of the gospel, Things that they once loved, they now hate. A hunger for God's word. A hunger to go to church. A hunger 
to study and meet with Christians, a hunger to be around people that generally you wouldn't typically hang around with, people of different ages, of different stages of life, people of different ethnicities or socioeconomic statuses, all the divisions from the world, they just start melting away as you start realizing that God has saved you into this amazing multicultural family. These are the cravings and the longings that come with this new heart, a new hunger for all of the goodness that is in God, but especially, our text points out, the goodness of his word, hunger for God's word. Does that reflect you today? Are you here today because of routine? Because you had to? Are you here today because you really do have a hunger for God's word? Can I just confess that before I really became a Christian, I grew up in a Christian family. I went to church and I fell asleep a lot. I didn't care. I'd listen to sermons and I'd be thinking about the Washington Capitals or sports, all kinds of other things. You ever been tempted to be more hungry for the sporting event that's coming up that day than the Bible? I have. This is pretty typical. Humans are made with hearts that need to be satisfied. It's always craving something. It's just like your stomach. That's why the analogy works so well. Like a newborn infant that is so dependent on mom to feed the baby. Be hungry, craving for milk. Now, sometimes people hear this and think, well, these must be new Christians. Or these must be very spiritually immature Christians. And I don't think that's the case. Don't import Hebrews chapter 5 or other texts of scripture into this. I think he's just talking about the basics of new people that are born again have new cravings and longings. It's kind of like a baby craving for their mother's milk who desperately needs that mother's milk in order to survive. Now the reason the description here, because notice all of the language about God's word in our text. Pure spiritual milk. What does that mean? Like, as opposed to what? Poisoned milk? Or unspiritual milk? Or something in alternative to the cleanliness of this milk? And the answer is the old context of 1 Peter in this time and day did not have baby formula. So, duh. You should kind of put it together if you have a child and it just so happens that you're unable to give that child milk, there was a whole system of finding nurses who were able to do that. And if you dig into the literature of this time period, which is, I think, actually really relevant, there's big debates about what is pure versus impure milk for that child and who would be safe and who wouldn't be safe. We can't say for sure that that's what Peter's referring to, but it does seem to make sense with the choice of words that he uses and this metaphor. And I think in light of that, he's saying there's pure milk and then there's corrupted milk. And in this case, 
It would be anything that is in objection to God and his word, anything that would corrupt the morals and values of a society in the same way that you'd want the nurturing milk of this infant to be able to help the child grow. Peter says, drink and crave this milk so that what? You grow up. You grow up into salvation. Because for Peter, salvation is not just a one-time event where you were born again and then you're done getting saved. It's a process of salvation. And it culminates when Christ returns, which is why your hope should be in the grace that's still to come when Christ returns. So continue growing every day with hunger for God's word. I hope the applications should be quite obvious. We should gather each week and not give up reading the scriptures as some are in the habit of doing. 1 Timothy chapter 4 expressly commands that when the church gathers together, you should just read the scriptures, which is a separate command from teaching and preaching the scriptures that he gives in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 3. So 1 Timothy 4, read the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3 and 4 verse 1 says preach the scriptures. We should have a diet of scripture in our services and hunger for it. Do you guys ever get excited that you're going to come to church and just someone's going to read for you the scriptures? Or come to community group and know like, I can't wait to talk more about scripture. I'm hungry for God's word. Or attend Wednesday Bible study and go deep into learning how to study scripture from 7 to 8 p.m. every Wednesday downstairs. Isn't it great that you're a part of a church community where they value the scriptures, where we love the Bible. This isn't just something that we feel like, oh, it's what we got to do. It's just it's tradition. These are good traditions because this is what helps you grow. Without it, you will die, spiritually speaking. You will be like an infant without any food. And if you've ever noticed, infants without any foods, fussy, whiny, you ever fussy and whiny? Perhaps you need satiated with scripture. You ever had that feeling after a good meal where you're just content? Like you've had enough. You're not too much where you're gorged like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I ate way too much. Or that you're not like hungry. Like, all right, as soon as dinner's over, I'm going to go eat second dinner. That, that comfortable, I'm satisfied. Like a baby after eating and they don't need any more. And they're peaceful. That kind of contentment, I believe, is essential for love. If we don't have new hearts with new hungers that then are satisfied with God and his gospel, then we're going to be crying babies all over the place and demand attention and something to satisfy those hungers. And Peter gives us a whole list of ways that this would look like. Look at verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. This completely contrasts what he says at the start of our passage. Brotherly love, earnest from a pure heart. Do you see the relationship between the new heart that's been purified and the pure milk of God's word through the gospel that then grows you into salvation so that you can put off and put on love. 
That's the big idea. A new heart, a new hunger makes you a new human, a new kind of person, one that's filled with love that puts off the old self. Let's think about that third idea, a new kind of human that puts off the old self and lives into this new reality of love. In Peter's explanation, he mixes his metaphors. So in verse 1, to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander is a clothing metaphor. It's like you've been wearing these certain set of clothes. And when you're into the new family, you have a new diet and a new wardrobe. And by mixing those two together, think the very basics of life. With food and clothing Paul says we should be content. So we've talked about the food, which is the milk of God's word, which is the gospel that's preached to you, Peter says. But notice the clothing. If you put off, well, you don't want to walk around without any clothes on, so what are you supposed to put on? And the answer is clear, love. A human that wears, like their coat, the first thing you see, brotherly, sincere love without hypocrisy people believe that jesus is actually the one that made up this word for spiritual purposes because the word hypocrisy is actor actress do you ever feel like sometimes you're at church and people are putting on a show like use all this religious language and kind of try and show off how much Bible knowledge they know or, or, or use these big prayers. Jesus talked to these Pharisees and said, guys, quit the show. Quit the games. You, you don't need to try and impress people. That's not how you should pray. In fact, if you want to really impress God, who's your first and foremost person that you should impress, go pray in your closet. Quit, quit trying to get pats on the back. Whoa, you pray really nice. That's hypocrisy. It's all just kind of for a show. It's not sincere in your heart. How about envy, jealousy? I mentioned that the first exile that happens in the Bible is in the garden. And I believe that the core of that story is a kind of envy. Hmm. A suspicion that God's holding out on me. Do you see that taking from the fruit? Because you think that the lie of the tempter I'll be better if I eat this fruit. If I take and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely I'll be more like God than I was supposed to be. And the sad irony is that they became less like they were supposed to be. To be truly human is to know that God is supremely love, he is supremely wise, and we should bow and submit to him and not take what is rightly only his. And in that case... They took off what was love and image-bearing, and they became naked and ashamed, and all kinds of evil and unloving society results as the outworking of a kind of envy and jealousy that God is holding out on you. Do you see that the antidote for that kind of heart posture why is it that so-and-so, they got engaged, and I didn't? Doesn't that stir up for many of us like a jealousy? How come they had children and I can't? 
How come? And you fill in the blank. Why do they have more money than I do? Why did they get that promotion? I mean, you go on and on and on. This is the human condition. We need new hearts because we're quick and prone to envy. But at the core of it isn't just about the thing that you want. It's about a heart that's not content in all of God's goodness for you. The only way that we will be the kind of community that truly, sincerely loves one another is when we have satisfied souls. When we're content with what God has given us in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, our love will be insincere. There'll be all kinds of malice, which is just another word for wickedness. The kind of community where we really family-like, brotherly love, care for one another, will be impossible. It's foundational for you to have a new heart with a new hunger that's satisfied in the goodness of God. Which is why I think the text that we're reading ends the way it does. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, almost all the commentators say he doesn't think that it's an if. It's a sense, but it's important to leave the word if. I think it's rhetoric. It's leaving the question hanging. Have you tasted? He knows they have, but if you ask the question, it makes them answer. Have you tasted the goodness of God? Have you tasted how good the gospel is? When was the last time you felt deep within your soul? satisfaction for all that God has already given you in Christ and that all these other things that we're quick to be jealous about they seem like hmm, take it or leave it this is a great way for you to diagnose what's really going on in your soul does it need to grow up does it need to hunger more for God and gospel well the only way to tell is community. To be around people, do real life with them, and not put on a show. True, genuine, authentic confession of where your heart really is, and then receiving God's grace and goodness, and know that he is enough for you. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason why at Embassy, when we started nine years ago, we would not only say, A, we're a word-centered church. We want to read the scriptures. We want to preach the scriptures. We want to study them deeply throughout the week. We want that to be the center of how we grow as Christians. But there's a second thing. Notice the way the end of chapter 1 says, this word, the word of God, is gospel. I believe this with all of my heart. The Bible is not just a bunch of commands. Love each other. Fundamentally, more than anything else, the Bible, God's word, is gospel. It is incredibly important for you when you approach the Bible to have the hunger, not just for words on a page or a bunch of lists of to-dos, but for grace coming to you through a person, through a relationship with God. I wonder if your devotional life reflects this reality, tasting and seeing the goodness of God in the word, in the face of Christ, the gospel. And for that reason, pretty much every single sermon, 
that I've preached to you, I want you to be thinking about nothing else at the end but just the beauty of the gospel. How good God is. How good it is to taste and sink your teeth into the meat that is God's love for you in Christ. So let's do it again. Your nakedness, your shame, your guilt, your need for a new heart, everything that really, really matters in this life, God in his kindness has already now given in the person of Jesus Christ. He made him manifest. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, 22 explain. He was foreknown, but he became visible. He became human. The son of God before the foundation of the world, the eternal second person of the triune God became a human, became a baby. He literally became an infant and grew up and obeyed the father every single step of the path that was set before him, which included living a perfect life and dying a death. It was the plan of the Father from before the foundation of the world that he would send his Son so that you and I could be made new. Not better humans, true, redeemed humans. And the only way that that would happen was by God taking on the punishment for sin. And so Jesus died on the cross for sins. To demonstrate his love for us, Romans 5, 8 says, God shows you just how much he loves you. Do you want to know what love looks like? True, brotherly love. Look at your older brother. His name is Jesus. Look at him stay as he hung on the cross, pierced with his hands, his feet, crown of thorns instead of a crown of gold. How precious is that blood that he would die for you in your place? Why should he have died? Why not you? The answer is love. But why did he love you? Did he love you because you were great? Did he love you because you deserved it? And the answer the Bible gives, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, is because he loved you. Why are you here today? Because through the power of the gospel, the preaching of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, the living hope of our ascended king, pouring out the spirit through preaching of good news, he caused you to be born again. And he loved you through that action. He loved you just because he loved you. Wouldn't it be great then to be a part of a community of people that received that, not just once, but regularly. And it gave them some kind of soul satisfaction, some deep-rooted contentment that they could genuinely have a conversation with you and love you. And it not be about games, about jockeying position, about what you could get out of them, but they just really care about you. Brothers and sisters, that's kind of the basics of the church. We should be known for by this kind of love, but it won't be possible if you don't have a new heart. So repent of your sins and ask Jesus to cleanse you through the preaching of the gospel right now that you'd have a new heart. And then if you're struggling in your Christian walk, then feed on Christ by faith, by coming to church, by studying scripture, by discipling one another. This is the equation. A pure heart plus pure milk of God's word. This makes a new kind of human. 
that has pure love for one another. I hope you see it. This isn't Phil's vision. It's 1 Peter 1, 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we want to give you praise and thanks. We want to praise you for being the eternal God whose eternal word does not perish. It does not fade. It does not waste away. The gospel that has just been preached is a message that will last to the end of the age. It's a living word. It's changing people right now. It's feeding people in this very second. Oh God, we're thankful for the living, nourishing value of your word. We thank you for its power to give us new affections and new hungers and new desires. And then ultimately, that we would glorify you by the kind of people that we are and the way that we live and love one another. Oh Lord, I pray that we would increasingly lean upon your word for all that we need. Even if we don't remember the specifics of the sermons, Lord, I pray that just like we didn't remember what we ate two weeks ago, we would be encouraged by the regular nourishing value of Scripture and eat it by faith, day after day, week after week, and commit ourselves to being disciplined people for the sake of your glory and your name among all nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.